You are looking live. I don't believe what I just saw. It is possible. There are no flags on the field. It's a miracle. Live from the home of the 2019 NCAA champion Virginia Cavaliers or the Texas Tech Red Raiders? Red Raiders. Okay, I'm sorry. <laughs> this is uh, the 252. Sports Talk Radio is done by academics. I am Chris Garretts. I'm Chris Moore. And I'm Sam Mulberry. So we are in, yeah, I think most of you probably know, we are in the Twin Cities. Uh, did anyone try going downtown Minneapolis on Saturday? I avoided it like the plague. I actually canceled an event because of fear of it. Which I'm sorry <laughs> I to had say my event canceled, so that was great. Now we went out for lunch and said it was But it rained. Yeah, yeah it wasn't going to yeah. work out. Yeah, it's uh, it's been exciting. It's been a while since we posted, right? It was, 2001 was the yeah, last time. Metrodome was the yep. host last time. Uh, so why don't we kick off right off with the Final Four. And we've got to be honest, we're recording on Monday morning, so we really don't know what the outcome of the game is. I know what I'm hoping for. Do we? Do we not know? No, do we <laughs> not know? Anyone listen Double to this question knows. Mark? Yeah. <laughs> do, you have, do you have a strong sense of uh, who you think is going to win? I don't. I just feel like it's going to be ugly. Uh, it's going to be like a, I, I do not like my tiebreaker prediction of 152 combined points. No. <laughs> I do like that I predicted Virginia would win it all because if that happens, mm-hmm. I actually win our bracket and can lord it over Sarah and Sam next week when they're both here. Do you think there's anybody who tuned into this show on Wednesday or later who didn't know who won and thought, finally, the 252 is out, I'll find out who won, and we're disappointing them? <laughs> we're not exactly a breaking news operation, right. no. are we? We're going to have to ramp up that part of our budget. Uh, so I don't know if you guys, I mean, I had a couple of questions to ask you. Any uh, kind of preliminary thoughts about watching the semifinals on Saturday night? And Michigan State went down this, surprisingly to Texas Tech? I think so. I think it was surprising how bad they looked. Yeah. 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 Uh, do you want to go first? Or I... I, I, I and I think this is maybe where you're headed with some of the things you want to talk about. But I felt really bad for Auburn. Yeah, even the end yeah. of that. Yes. Yeah. Well, let's start there. So uh, obviously, the officials, uh, let's say, came into the spotlight in the last mm-hmm. few seconds of the Auburn game. If you didn't watch it, I mean, the instant one was there was a foul called on a desperation three pointer by uh, Virginia guard, which I is a good say, call. I think it was a good yes, call. It was like, a good I call. handed threat, but then. Gradually, then people said, "Hey, wait a minute! Wasn't there a double dribble like at the? It was like the, the previous five or six play." And it turns right. out those people were right. They, <laughs> they were. No one, no one said it at the time. Though they on their broadcast, they did not at the no, at the no, moment. No. It, it was came after. Later. Yeah, it was after the. Um, I think it was bet- when during the break before right. he shot the free throw. Well, because yeah. they have this officiating territory is in like, right. but he didn't. I mean, like he had to pipe in later, like. No one was saying this at the time. Like I, right. I want us but all to before, go back to the moment. But before he shot the free throws, they were. I mean, it's like it was that quick, but not in the moment. Yes. Right. Okay. So anyway, one thing we have not talked a lot about in our now 10 episodes of the 252, which again is meant to preview a, a class on the politics and history of sports, is uh, officiating, which mm-hmm. is a very important part of any sporting competition. And you know, I could even see kind of politics of a sorts questions here. Like, mm. Well, like – I mean, how do we um, set up procedures that facilitate the smooth functioning of – I mean, like, in a sense, sure. like, we all, like, hate referees, right? Like, they, we, we, we only notice them when they fail. We, like, right. I mean, I, you think back to uh, playing sports at recess. You know, as an 8-year-old, there's no need for referees. You kind of – part of what you're doing is you're figuring out how you deal with conflict when it arises, how you kind of right. set parameters sure. for competition. Then at a certain point, you actually need referees, mm-hmm. right? And so, like, I, I do think that's kind of a – 
politics or it's a civil society kind of question, right? We could ask, like, you're looking at me as if I'm I actually think that this is more of an art than a science kind of question in the following way. Let me explain what I mean by that. I think that we are so attuned to treating sporting events as narratives, and we want a narrative told to us. And we really, like you said, we don't like referees, and that's part of the narrative. And we've built in this idea that we want to see the players resolve the question of the game, Mm -hmm. uh, Mm -hmm. not the referees. Um, So even though I would say the double dribble question aside, the fact that that was a a, a legitimate good call on a a foul on a three-pointer and free throws decided the game Mm – we, we, that feels unsatisfying because it feels like the referee intervened in resolving mm-hmm. the game. In fact, I heard many people say, including some paid people who speak on sports television stations, say like, oh, the referees decided this game. Well, no, the players decided the game with their actions. The referees made the calls which facilitated that. And absent the presence of the referees, we're not playing the same game. Sure. No, that that's actually a very good point. And, you know, we'll come back to our sports movie, Mount Rushmore, in a moment. But, you know, I think we, we see that in movies, right? Like, I mean, a good sports movie is not one where there's a controversial call at the end necessarily. Right. right. You, okay, now I want to write that sports movie because how, how, like, disappointing would that be? If yeah. <laughs> but I, I guess what I mean, though, is um, – I think then one way that filters backwards is that that accounts for some of the bad behavior of parents at lower levels of oh, sporting competition, yes. right? Where yes. actually, like, those are just volunteers trying to mm-hmm. do their best. Oftentimes kids. <laughs> right. I mean, like, try to, I mean, the umpires I know, like, with my, like, they see themselves as educators in a sense. They're helping to teach the game. Mm-hmm. I mean, we're all part of, competition just means striving together, right? I mean, umpires, referees are as essential to that as any of the players or the coaches. Um but I guess what I'm getting at is maybe it's – so the history question is, like, how has officiating changed over time? My sense is it's become a much bigger part of it. Like, think mm. back to initial, like, early baseball is always our, our touchdown for comparison. You had one umpire. Correct. Right, who missed a lot of calls just because it's really hard to officiate a baseball game when there's one person. Right? And sure. over time, like, we went to cruise of two, three, four, mm-hmm. right? Um I would assume football is the same way. Like, I assume we haven't always had crews of, like, seven or eight people. Like, it, over time, like, it seemed to make sense that we had to get more and more precise. Mm-hmm. Right? And and I don't think that's necessary for competition. You could have, like, do, do we feel like those early World Series were terrible competitions because there was one umpire missing? I mean, I think it tells us something, if nothing else, about what we expect sports to look like. It probably tells us a lot about television. Right, because yes. now everyone because an, becomes an mm-hmm. official, right? Because you got, and especially once instant replay. The thing you said at the end there, I think is the most important. I think the growth of officiating and the growth of the promise of officiating has been in direct response to technology. And officials, human officials, are essentially trying to stay ahead of instant replay. Mm-hmm. Because if you can put enough officials on the floor or on the, on the field in a way that allows them to catch things and get them right, mm-hmm. um, you're obviating the criticisms that come from re- television replays. So is it inevitable then that we will dispense at some point with human officials? Like, I mean, mm. we already are doing this to, in some areas of the game, right? Sure. But I, I mean, I don't think you have to be a transhumanist to say, like, there would be a way <laughs> of thinking, like, we can design machines or artificial intelligences that could fulfill this function more objectively than these inevitably flawed humans would do it. Is that the direction we're moving? Is that... I think that happens first in in highly technical areas. Mm -hmm. So I think it's more likely a baseball umpire gets replaced than a football official initially. Or tennis is the other one where you've probably seen it go further than anywhere else. Exactly. Or or horse racing or auto racing or those kinds of things. Um, 
but then eventually I think it is quite possible uh, that we see as more and more things become able to be we can we can automate the 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 judging of infractions yeah I think that happens so to overthink this considerably is this just another manifestation of us becoming more technocratic society and I also wonder if it's more litigious society all like I, I, I wonder at an earlier time did we assume these things like, that there should be some level of perfection in the way the rules are enforced in the game. I also wonder if rules have become more complicated over time as well. I think about this every time we do like instant replay in the NFL. Like why? I understand we can do it, and so we do it. But like, mm-hmm. why are we adjudicating questions of inches? And not right? just adjudicating, but allowing for re-adjudication. Coaches have challenges. Now. Yeah, yeah. I. Yeah, so I don't know. I mean, this is maybe one thing I just want to put more thought into. Like, I wonder if this is, again, a kind of mirror of society, mm-hmm. what, what this says about kind of early 21st century American society. And maybe it's like others, too. Like, I look at what's happening with soccer refereeing now because they're starting to get instant replay. You know, there's a cultural think. argument in American foreign policy that suggests that American culture prizes legalism. Mm-hmm. And as America has risen to, to uh, hegemony, hegemony in rule-making international systems that they've put more precedence on legal standards as opposed to rule by association or rule by relationship. And maybe this is playing into our sports as well. I also think it allows you to sort of outsource kind of the morality and ethics because it because it be and this is this is nothing new but there is i mean there's the sense of like well if the refs didn't call it then it's okay right you know where Mm -hmm. if you were if you and i went out and played pickup basketball um and there was no ref we would have to deal with was that a foul or not Mm -hmm. And, and instead it's like well it's up to him it's not me you know, like so, so, so it allows us to then say, "I'm going to take every edge and every advantage I can, even if it might be a little questionable, because there is an outside arbiter. So I don't have, so I can do things that I, w- if I had to monitor myself, I wouldn't do." Yeah, well, mm. I think it's a really good question. Once we get to uh, can the intersection of faith and sports too. So a century ago, the model of the Christian athlete in America was Christy Mathewson, the Christian gentleman, Mm -hmm. muscular Christian, kind of the Victorian ideal. And one of the kind of like common stories you hear about Christy Mathewson is that he would not accept a mistaken call by an umpire, right? It was a question of integrity and honesty to him. And I think about that every time I watch a Bethel competition, right? Like they're perfectly, those athletes are perfectly happy to argue, perhaps with a little less profanity, but like, mm-hmm. I mean, I've seen coaches from our uh, institution behave just like the coaches you see at the NCAA. And I very rarely have seen them like say, you know what, you got that call wrong. I'm going to be honest here, right? Like I, I do think it's an interesting question that might seem very naive of me to ask, but there was this old ideal of I mean, it's attached to notions of amateurism and gentlemanly conduct as well mm-hmm. that we've discarded for good reasons in some ways. But in other ways, uh, I, I do wonder what's lost in that we shift this burden entirely onto officials and or technology to, to decide. Do you know where we still see this, though? This sort of a version of gentlemanly conduct. It's not gentlemanly per se, but is uh, in trash talk in the trash talking in the NBA mm-hmm. and probably in the NFL. But we can see it more in the NBA uh, where players do trash talk and a certain level of trash talk is accepted amongst players and and, and coach or uh, referees do not do not officiate trash talking but certain kinds of trash talking are considered over the line right. and it's in, it's interior to the players themselves to police what isn't is is not acceptable to say to another player on the basketball court well, it, it, I mean, it's fascinating. I mean, in baseball, how often do we hear about unwritten rules, right? Absolutely. And all that, I mean, those are very much historically and culturally conditioned, and mm-hmm. now we've seen those being challenged. 
by the influx of, for example, Latin American players yes. who came from a different set of unwritten rules, mm-hmm. right? And now are violent, they're transgressing. And so, yeah. Anyway, like this maybe is something to come back to at some point I think so. in the fall or in the class. All right. A second question I had as I watched it was just the nature of how sports broadcasting has changed over time. Like, uh, partly thought of it as a matter of continuity. I was trying to imagine the last time Jim Nance was not doing play-by-play, that Bill Raftery was not a you know, color analyst on NCAA mm-hmm. game. Um, I mean, in many ways, and it's on CBS, it's on this kind of venerable network that all of us have access to. It's, the NCAA championship is kind of a throwback in that mm-hmm. sense, right? Um, even as it's changed, you know, the, the, the halftime commentary is done by cable analysts from the NBA, basically, except for Clark Kellogg. Um, and so I don't know that I even had a question there as much as I was aggravated that I kept kind of commercials like in the middle of the, the drama with like one and a half seconds left with cram a commercial in. Um, but maybe here what I'm thinking about is this very notion of broadcasting. Sports does seem to be one of the last places where you have some notion of a broadcast instead of otherwise mm-hmm. media like this is very narrowly cast, mm-hmm. right? Um like I was watching commercials and realizing I haven't seen any of these shows that CBS is advertising. And when Don't I was worry, growing, no one else has. Well, either. but I, that that is a significant change in yeah. American media, and it tells you something else, right? Um, so I don't even know if I had a question here. There's just like one other thing that struck me in the midst of one really good game and one just kind of messy game. I was thinking about the nature of you know, this is very much how it was probably broadcast you know, with different camera angles, ten, twenty, even thirty years ago. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, like the whole media landscape around it has changed so much, it felt a little bit like a dinosaur, um, and not a bad way. Just like it just felt a little bit out of place to be watching that in the Super Bowl, right? Like those are maybe the World Series. Okay, so I, I had nothing more to say about that. Sorry, I'll just move on from that since you guys have nothing <laughs> to add. So let's move on. Uh, let me just update an earlier discussion. I think it was in our second or third episode. I had mentioned that there were two, possibly three new spring professional football leagues. You were leagues. very excited about that. I was very excited mm-hmm. about something called the Alliance of American Football. I was ready to break it all down. I think I named all the teams. I was excited about its future and its partnership with the NFL. And last Wednesday, it suddenly ceased operations because it's uh, not commissioner, but the chair of its board is a, a venture capitalist named Thomas Dundon, who owns the Carolina Hurricanes. Apparently, he had extended some kind of significant line of credit, and he mm-hmm. decided to cut his losses and say, I'm done, and that was the end of the league. And, uh, so maybe I'll walk back some of my earlier optimism that there would yep. be a chance. But, you know, but do have, you still have optimism in the in the, the concept, in the idea? Yeah, or? I mean, I was actually surprised. Like, I had the sense that this had deeper pockets, a better relationship with the NFL. Maybe I just, you know, was not doing much digging here. But, like, I do still think there could be a model, in, and it would depend really, I think, on the NFL. Like, I guess I am convinced at this point that if the NFL wants to destroy one of these leagues, the NFL will find ways to destroy it. And what it would take is the NFL to decide that this is its developmental league. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In that case, that could happen. I don't think there's necessarily room for a genuine competitor to the National Football League no. at this point. Uh, barring, I mean, because the only thing that would cause its influence to decline that precipitously would probably lead to a decline in popularity for football generally. Right. So unless you're doing like a flag football league that doesn't have content. I mean, like it would have to be just a total a rethinking different sport. of the sport. Yeah. Yeah. So I just wanted to update us because we are your home for breaking news <laughs> on the Alliance for American Football. Speaking of breaking news, I think we need – do you want to do Worth the Watch and then wrap up with sports? Can we do one more quick thing on the on the collapse of the, um, oh, sure. the Alliance? Um, 
call back to a previous guest on our podcast. I was speaking with Jaron Rosty, one of the two Rosty uh, siblings, um, and I, as you know, he's Bethel's uh, quarterback last season. And I asked him a question that we've we kicked around here. I said, if if football goes away as a sport in American culture, declines significantly, what replace is? Does some other kind of football rise up to replace it, or does uh, does the Premiership, does European soccer? He was actually wearing a Man City jersey mm-hmm. when I asked him this, so I was expecting that as his answer. And he said, "Oh no, it'll be esports." And he was quite convinced that this that it was that yeah. esports was the uh, was the right it, answer that, here. That that's kind of the the popular like alternate like like I, I um in his book What If We're Wrong Chuck Klosterman goes through the same line of thinking and then lands at esports and talks about about wow. about that as well. So I mean that that's a, a not uncommon place to go. Um, maybe I'm just resistant to wanting to even consider that as an option, but I just don't see it. I, uh, so you completely abandon the notion of, hey, there's a very expensive brick-and-mortar stadium you go to to watch some kind of competition, right? Are, are we actually all going to some, like, movie theater to watch this take place? Or oh, no. I, I think this is this, purely done this through... Con- this connects um, ideally to the whole uh, Netflix streaming universe that you just sit right, at home but, and watch this. Right, but I understand, like, what we're placing here is just the nature of, like, what is sports exactly? Exactly. And it's not, like, muscle-bound, very fast... No. Okay, but it's also like the nature of how we participate in sports is you go to a certain place to watch something for a number of Absolutely. hours. Absolutely. Spend money while we're so we're discarding that somehow too. Why Welcome is that to happening? The Matrix, Chris. Mm-hmm. No, but why? Why is that happening? Why is that simply gone away instead of that audience now shifting to other kinds of sports? Because that's what mm-hmm. you're saying is that's taking right. place in the NFL. So, however many millions of well, there people are, there are. I mean, there are there are arenas where esports happen. So, I mean, there there is. I mean, I'm just saying, like, but, like, but that's not what this, it's. Yeah, this the arena is superfluous to esports. It seems to me. I understand that, but but I'm well, I'm trying to tie your two your your, your thought together. So, it, what what would people go see? Well, people go see that now. So there might be a live component in the same way there's a live music component where you you go to actually watch the people do this. There could be, but I'm assuming it's on a vastly different scale of like pro sports attendance right now. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, how luxury boxes? Have dis- are we doing that somehow? I, I guess I'm just wondering know, like how now, disruptive but, but that is doesn't. This? But that doesn't mean we. I mean, I'm just saying like like it could move in that direction. Like that's not out of the question. Right. What I'm trying to get is like what makes the NFL the NFL, right? Mm-hmm. And what makes the major pro I sports think- the major pro sports? Like we're talking about. This is not just a different kind of sport. Right. This, like would, this, would, be, this, would, this sure. would be the tipping point would be when people who are not interested watch or like because like, like they're what makes the NFL the NFL is that like my wife sometimes watches the NFL, too. Uh, mm-hmm. And it's like she she actually probably uh, actively doesn't like the NFL, but she watches the Super Bowl. She watches the Vikings sometimes. Like it's, I think it's that kind. And same with like she'll go to a Twins game, but she's not going to sit at home and watch the Twins. She doesn't know what their record is. She can't name a player on the team. Right. I think it's things like that. So if esports could make that kind of break, or so, like that would, it would need mm-hmm. that kind of breakthrough sure. to all of a sudden make the leap to from a niche thing to something that just becomes. There's never going to be monoculture things again, but something more like that. Right. Okay. Uh, I'm horrified, but let's move on to. <laughs> I mean, I, I like if that ever if we get to that point, we'll have to have like a unit in our course <clears throat> about the nature of community and how mm-hmm. we experience relationship with each other. But anyway, yeah. let's move on. Let's quick do worth the watch, and then I'll have the results for our Mount Rushmore of sports movies. All right, uh, Chris said that uh, Chris Moore said that we should watch the uh, Twins Philly series this weekend. 
Uh, the Phillies won the first game 10 to 4 on the strength of a three hit four RBI night from first baseman Reese Hos- uh, Hoskins, mm-hmm. um, despite the Twins shortstop Jorge Polanco hitting for the cycle. Mm-hmm. Um, but the Twins leveled the series on Saturday with a 6 to 2 victory. And in the rubber match, the Phillies pulled. It out 2-1 uh, to one on the strength of strong pitching and a two-run homer by Hoskins. This is ridiculous. It was a great curveball. I just kind of flicked the wrist, hit this thing down and away, and it went out. I, yeah. So I, a, it was worth the watch. Like I'm going to give that a worth the watch. I said that you should watch the 172nd Grand National Steeplechase horse race. It was won by 4-1 hmm. favorite Tiger Roll, which became the first horse since 1974 to repeat as Grand National Champion. The race was marred by the death of Up for Review. The first equine fatality in the Grand National since 2012. Hmm. Um, what uh, is there a record for consecutive wins in this? Yeah. Uh, two is the most anyone's okay. ever won consecutively. I think three is the most a horse has ever won, but they weren't consecutive. Okay. Gotcha. Uh, and then Chris Garrett said that we should watch the 2019 Asian Cup of Table Tennis. Uh, for the second year in a row, the Chinese men and women swept the gold and silver with Fan Zendong uh, taking the men's gold and Zhu Yuling. Uh, winning women's gold. Now, I'm going to say worth the watch, and here's why, because mm-hmm. I'm convinced that anything played at its highest level is is kind of cool to watch. Yep. I have gone online to look for the world championship of foosball. It's kind of interesting <laughs> to watch. It's also kind of impossible to watch, but kind of interesting. I think it's also, like, it's it's uh, dynasties are fun to, to watch and to loathe. I assume that's true of, like, the Chinese and table tennis, yeah. right? I bet in arena, so. in arena, highest level table tennis oh, is it's wild. Be great. Yep. Yeah, it's fantastic. Better than eSports. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> So, uh, in our last episode, we each nominated three sports movies for a hypothetical Mount Rushmore of sports movies. We then passed this on to our listeners, and they voted. And so, voting closed Monday morning when we recorded. Here are the results. Uh, Number one, Field of Dreams, narrowly ahead of Chariots of Fire, narrowly ahead of Rocky, very narrowly ahead of Bull Durham for number four. That, I mean, these are like one percentage gradients. Next was Karate Kid, and then came Rudy. Sam, I sent you some thoughts about the fate of poop dreams and raging bull. Our, our listeners are wrong. Oh my goodness, they're wrong. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I mean, I, I picked Hoop Dreams number one because I actually, and I, I really do mean think it's it's the greatest sports movie of all time. And yes, it's a documentary, and maybe some people either haven't seen it or they would they haven't seen it, or or they would say, well, no, it's a documentary, so so I'm not going to count that. They Nothing in it. the phrase sports movie says it has to be no, fictional. No, no, it says you can't no, use real no. footage. And I would I would concede if somebody wanted to say that the first three three years, you know, freshman through junior year in that is a documentary about sports. But I defy anyone to watch senior year, to watch Arthur Agee go downstate and tell me that is not the best sports movie you've ever seen. Yep. I um I, like I actually am fine with the top four. Two of mine are on there, two of Chris's are on there. I actually like all four of those. Were you movies. surprised that Chariots of Fire was number one? It was or number two. Or two. Or number two, I'm sorry. Yeah. Uh, no. Okay. Uh, well, I, you got to think. Like, we also have a largely Christian demographic. That's that true. angle, I think, buys yeah. a few votes. And I want to say I love Chariots of Fire, now, so I'm not knocking No, no, no. I understand. So here's here's my beef, as it were. Like, first of all, thanks for, for voting. Thanks mm-hmm. for writing in with Keep your voting. comments. Yes, thank we you. appreciate it. This is great. Um, I would say if we actually totaled in the write-in votes, I would guess that Hoosiers, remember the Titans, uh, there are a couple others, but Hoosiers, oh, and Miracle, yeah. would be pretty close. I don't think they would have crept in the top four, but I think they would have been right up there with Karate Kid and Rudy. And, like, yep. I like Miracle a lot. I like Remember the Titans enough to watch it once. I don't really, well... 
I don't, I don't actually like Hoosiers all that much, but I understand why people do. But I would say you've got to find a new narrative to sports movies, <laughs> people. Like you are just watching the same movie. We talked about mm-hmm. this, and I mean, like most people aren't going to listen to our breakdown of all this. But I think it's very revealing that people would instantly say that and be aggrieved that that's not on the list of great sports. I movies. wonder how much of it is. I think for some some people, if you said a sports movie, it actually has to. That yeah. is what a sports movie is: is that narrative. And anything that's not that narrative, it's why sometimes people say, "Well, Raging Bull's not really a sports movie yep. because it's yep. not that story." Well, I mean, it's it, honestly, it's a reflection of a concern I have for the class. When you label mm. it history and politics of sports, what sports means to people is. Um, that you know, it's mm-hmm. we're going to tell stories of uh, people banding together to overcome adversity, and underdogs will once in a while win, and dynasties will win, and largely it's going to be fair competition. Like I hope people, we have to figure out. Like I think that's part of it, and we need to help students understand, and maybe listeners understand. That's not what sports. Sports is, is dark. Sports is fraught. It mm-hmm. is as implicated with, by sin as anything else, and we ought to tell those stories, and those are better movies. It's why The Natural would have been more interesting had it gone along with Goodness. the book. When he, I mean, The book does not end like the movie does, and it's a, it's a lot darker of a, of a story mm. about mythic quality but also mythic yeah. flaw and failure. Yeah. Uh, but like, uh, uh, marketers <laughs> understand this. You know, Disney producers <laughs> understand exactly what sells, and I, I just... I think we're missing the richness of what sports fact or fiction has to offer us if we don't don't see that. So, like uh, listeners, maybe like go watch Raging Bull. Mm-hmm. Like I haven't actually seen Hoop Dreams. I'm fiction gonna go is see dead, Chris. Hoop Dreams. Okay, I think here ends the rant. All right, so we will be back after a break to talk about coaching. We talked with a couple of student athletes a couple of weeks ago. Now we're going to bring in a couple of Bethel coaches, Gretchen Hunt head women's volleyball coach, and Alicia Fistendahl, who is the assistant coach of the men's basketball team, to talk about coaching in the NCAA at Division Three. The ball is ticked. There you are. You're running for your life. You're a shooting star, Lord. This week in sports history. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, April 11th, 1921. A bantam weight boxing match between Johnny Ray and Ray Dundee ends in no decision, but makes history as the first sporting event broadcast on radio thanks to trailblazing local station KDKA. Boston, Massachusetts, April 13, 1957. Led by point guard Bob Cousy and rookie center Bill Russell, the Celtics defeat the St. Louis Hawks in a double overtime game seven. It's the first of 11 NBA titles they'll earn over the next 13 years. Brooklyn, New York, April 15, 1947. Dodgers infielder Jackie Robinson becomes the first African-American to play Major League Baseball in the 20th century. He goes on to win the first Rookie of the Year prize as the Dodgers take the National League pennant. Augusta, Georgia, April 13, 1997. Tiger Woods wins the Masters, the first of 14 major championships. The 21-year-old sets a tournament record low score, lapping the field by 12 strokes. There it is, a win for the ages. His father... With that bypass operation six weeks ago, unable to be out on the course today, but he was there vicariously, step for step, with his son, Tiger Woods, 
in a moment like no one has ever seen at the Masters. Shattering record after record after record. The green jacket will be on his shoulders in just a moment. You've been listening to This Week in Sports History. This week on the 252, we're talking to a couple of Bethel's coaches. We're joined today by Gretchen Hunt, who is Associate Athletic Director, but also Head uh, Coach of the Women's Volleyball Team at Bethel University, and by Alicia Vistendahl. And Alicia, you're Assistant Coach for the Men's Basketball Team. Are you also doing athletic training? Correct. I'm the athletic trainer for the Men's Basketball Team. Okay. Okay. So uh, as we said in the first segment, a couple weeks ago, we talked to a couple of Bethel student athletes. We want to now do a very similar kind of conversation with a couple of coaches, and as usual with these uh, conversations. We just want to ask you to tell your story a little bit. So uh, what, what, where would you start your sports story and how did it lead you to where you are now? Well, I can go first. I, um, I grew up in really little towns. I grew up um, the biggest, what I call growing up part of my life was in Guernsey, Wyoming, which is 800 people in the southeast corner of Wyoming hmm. um, that exists for a Burlington Northern Thousand Mile Railroad stop and a National Guard camp. Um, okay. And so real small, my dad was a church planter and we went there to plant a Baptist church. And um, so I grew up um, in real 30 people in my class, really tiny school where you could do everything. And so mm. from the beginning, I loved sports. And my mom, they asked my mom, who was a teacher, to like coach middle school volleyball. And so I used to go with her as an elementary student and hit the ball against the wall and do whatever I could do. So. In Guernsey, I got to play volleyball, got to play basketball, and got to run track um, and did everything there in this little town. Um, I actually never, and and we moved to Iowa when I was 16 uh, to Decorah, and my dad planted another church there and um, kept doing volleyball and basketball for a little while and track. Um, All through that time of three seasons, from seventh grade all the way on. I actually had all men coaches the whole time, so that was my Mm. experience growing up. Um, And my first female coach I had in college when I played volleyball at Central College um, in Pella, Iowa. Um, But but when I moved to Iowa, an interesting thing was that Iowa girls basketball was still playing six Six on six. six. (laughs) So I got to play the end, got to, (laughs) had to play the end of the six on six era in girls basketball. So this was kind of like an offensive zone, defensive zone. You stayed in half the court. Stayed in half your court. You had two dribbles. Um, You couldn't take the ball out of anyone's hand unless they were in the paint. Um, you passed the ball from one side to the other. You were a forward or a defender. Mm-hmm. I was a defender, so that was super exciting <laughs> to run around like guarding someone all day um, and no shooting. Uh, so I'd played five on five growing up my whole life, and so it was it was a little bit. What of was the genesis? I've, I've heard of, this was in Ohio, I grew up in Ohio in a very similar mm-hmm. circumstance to you. What was the genesis of, of of six on six basketball? So as I understand it, it had to do with the idea. I mean, and I've read I've read some books. Um, I just read a really great book uh, about basketball in Oklahoma in, you know, like women's basketball in Oklahoma in like the 40s. And Hmm. um, but it had to do with, yeah, women not really 
they didn't think physically should be running full court. Um, six people got more people involved. Mm -hmm. You didn't really have to be able to shoot. So okay. if you could guard, mm -hmm. you could play too. Um, but it just lingered in Iowa. The reason I heard it lingered in Iowa, and I think maybe Oklahoma, Oklahoma. was the other state, yeah. was that it was the girls' basketball tournament was well attended. From it was pa it would pack out hmm. thousands of people from all hmm. over the country to see the remnants of six on six basketball. And um, and so the small schools took a long time, and a lot of coaches were acclimated uh, to that. Yeah, and and really holding on, and so. Took yeah, it was ninety, ninety one. Um, I think was the last year I played. I think it lingered for another year or two. So interesting. Mm -hmm. yeah. That's interesting. Alicia, what's your? Where does your story start? I can't remember life without sports. <laughs> so I think um, I think I have a picture of me as a two year old with a Twins hat on that my mom still <laughs> has. So I've always been and just it just felt part of play that I remember as a, as a child and playing night games, playing whatever. And then um, I probably learned at an early age that I was pretty competitive. And so then being involved in organized sports was just what I wanted to do. So, um, I mean, would go to other camps and things like that, but then always remember like playing in sports and things like that being, being the, the highlight. And as I look back at the things that stand out the most, um, so participating in, and basketball and running and softball. Um, those are kind of my main sports growing up. Um, I played baseball for a little while and, and that kind of stuff. So, um, and then I knew, so I came to Bethel, I attended Bethel, um, and I was always, I was very interested in the medical field, but kind of didn't think I was going to, didn't picture myself as a doctor, but I thought, well, I like sports mm -hmm. and I like medicine. Mm -hmm. How about sports medicine? <laughs> and met with know. Neil Dutton and, sure. um, and I can still remember. So then I just loved being immersed in it immediately and being around the, around the teams and being right on there on the sideline with the football coaches and just learning and then helping the athletes in the way that I could. And, um, and I can remember specifically being in my townhouse over in Arden Village in August. And I was there for um, you know summer training camp yeah, yeah. with the football team. And I can remember dialing on the phone on the wall and calling my mom, be like, "This is what I'm supposed to be doing." <laughs> and so, um, yeah. And I hope that I hope that our students here at Bethel have that same euphoria at any given moment um, during their time because that's part of the process when you're here. And so I'm just so grateful I've been able to be. Um, in sports, involved in sports. In um, so then, I basically in the last twenty years, I've been in college or pro sports um, in some aspects. So, so um, kind of connect. The, so um, from sports medicine, mm -hmm. you're still doing athletic training, but also coaching on the side. What, what's the story that leads you back to Bethel? Sure. Yeah. Yep. When I graduated from Bethel, I actually worked at Northwestern down the road for a couple of years, and I was an assistant women's basketball coach there, an athletic trainer, and you know, piece things together and. Um, then in the summers, those summer months, I worked for the Timberwolves. I did the, I was the athletic trainer for their summer basketball camps. Okay. And then, um, and then in 99 was the first year of the Lynx. And so the guys that I worked with at the Wolves said, why don't you come down and meet the athletic trainer for the Lynx? And I was like, all right, sounds good. So long story short, he asked me to help out and I was like, well, I'll do whatever I can. And so, um, cause I said, I was always was interested in being around pro sports and seeing what that's mm -hmm. all about and finding my whatever my niche is and so that's when I so I did the summer basketball camps for the Timberwolves worked at Northwestern and then and then I did that for a little while 
and then I was looking to go to grad school, but then I kind of had, I was in a great position with the links and um, kind of knew that the head athletic trainer might leave, and so I stuck around, yeah. and then um, I was hired as a head athletic trainer for the links, did that for five years, so, and then I I left the week my daughter was born and, oh. and didn't go back after my maternity leave. So, and then that's when I was able to um, help out at Bethel as an athletic trainer, um, which I'm so thankful I was able to do when my babies were little. Mm-hmm. So my son had some health issues, and so I just couldn't work a lot. But I'm grateful that I was able to be here and work with sports um, and here and be an athletic trainer. And then I've grown into this role as um, assistant men's basketball coach. Okay. Um, Gretchen, what about you? How do you, at what point do you become, um, well, especially Bethel head volleyball coach, but what was your path into coaching? Yeah, I just, um, I was not planning to be a coach intellectually in college. I, what I was interested in weren't the majors that typically got connected to coaching, um, like at that time, exercise science or physical education. So I was a psychology major, political Mm. science and Spanish minor, Mm -hmm. studied abroad in college, um, and I came up to Minnesota to do grad school at the Hubert Humphrey Institute of Public Affairs, and my master's is in policy analysis and social policy. And just spending my days in the classroom, I would I just sometimes kind of longed for like a mm. little, like I just need something a little different at the end of my day, which mm. I was kind of mm-hmm. used to as a college athlete. You did class all day, and then you would go to the gym. Yeah. Um, and so I, call, I knew of Bethel. My dad was a converged church planter, and so I contacted the co-chair at the time, Andrew Palaleo, and said, hey, do you want, like, I'll come shag balls. I'll come, um, like, I'm really good at organizing things. I could, like, help you run a tournament. I'll do whatever. And he called me right away and said, I have no women helping me out. Central had a really great volleyball tradition at the time I was there. And he said, just come, let's meet, and mm-hmm. you can start helping. And so I was um, finished up my grad program and taught for two years at the U of M. And while I did that, uh, I helped here part-time. So I was his assistant coach for three years. We won the conference in 99 under Andrew, a first time ever, and went to the NCAA tournament. Um, had a first-team All-American, Bethel's first ever. It was really fun working with Andrew. Um, and then he got the head job at South Dakota State, which was D2 at the time, mm-hmm. um, in May. And so it was a really late hire. I was the assistant coach. We had five seniors coming back. I think they just really wanted not much change, and they were aggressive on the search committee, you know, for me. Um, And so at 24, I was hired as the head coach here um, Hmm. by Chris Hester. And Dottie Haugen was a big part Mm -hmm. of that process um, because I was – then I would have taught too. So volleyball was worth 30% of my job at the Mm -hmm. time, one-third. And so I taught 16 credits of classes, um, or 16 TEUs, not credits, 16 TEUs at the time um, of my first year. And then we and we won the conference, and we made the NCAA tournament, and I was coach of the year, and we had first team All-American. So it was a really fun year. Um, <laughs> Sounds like it. But, and then I've been here ever since. Um, but part of, but back to why, um, when I was doing, helping Andrew and doing my classes during the day and working with some other different things related to policy and politics. What I got, what I would get excited about thinking about doing was coming out to practice. And I just kind of started realizing, like, I, time flies by. Like, I don't think about time when I'm doing volleyball or mm-hmm. when I'm prepping for it or when, and that's when I started thinking, ooh, maybe I should do this mm-hmm. instead of what I'm thinking about doing. Um, and it was great to have kind of three years under Andrew to really figure that out. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
No, I mean, it's an interesting, it, I think we all have a lot of different stories of how do we find our calling, how do we help students mm -hmm. find it. And you both have talked about, like, time didn't even seem to pass, the sense of euphoria you felt, Those Alicia. Aha moments. Right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so, I mean, I was thinking last night watching the NCAA Men's Basketball Championship, we see coaches a lot this time of year, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, they're, I mean, it's mm -hmm. kind of the standard sort of broadcasting move as you cut back and forth between action and the coaches responding. And we see Roy Williams selling Infinity cars during the commercial breaks. Mm -hmm. And I think we have a certain idea in our head, mostly probably from men's basketball and football, of what it means to be a coach in the NCAA. Help us understand what it's actually like to be a coach, um, especially at the Division three level. You know, you both interact with other levels of sports. Like how is it... I guess what would be surprising to us about being a coach, maybe some of what's not surprising about being a coach. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> um, what's surprising? Surprising, and I think this is probably true for a lot of people's professions, that when you pull back the curtain, there's all kinds of things that you do that people would be like, you have to do that. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, things like, I mean, you know, buying groceries, like driving vans, um, just the... You know, you wake up on game day. I remember reading Mike Krzyzewski's book, Leading from the Heart, and he talks mm -hmm. about game day and how he, like, takes a nap and takes a shower. And, like, his game day is, like, the most relaxed <laughs> so that he right. can go and mm -hmm. be, like, really present and awake. And I'm, like, most of our game day is, like, probably <laughs> someone is at the grocery store at, like, 7 in the morning <laughs> filling up cooler food because a lot mm -hmm. of volleyball is, like, back-to-back -back at tournaments. So we're filling up cooler food where, like never get a nap in on game day that would be weird and you're just like running from groceries to picking up vans to driving the vans potentially to your games to um you know there's just so many things that i don't think people know that coaches do mm -hmm. um and especially small college and sure. maybe some of them had to go to the grocery store come here teach a couple classes mm -hmm. right. sure then run over to soho pick up the vans run back um, you know, get the map out, hope your assistant coach is feeling comfortable driving the other van. Um, and so I think, I think, and I think it's good. I think it gives us better perspective than maybe some division one has, mm -hmm. but it is, I think it is a lot different than what people think. A lot of your day is not spent coaching. Right. Alicia, you've got kind of a unique opportunity from experience with major pro sports and now coming down to division three college sports you know is are there ways in which you know the the day in life of someone working with the links is similar to the day in life someone working with men's basketball at bethel i assume they're very different in some ways too right right um i think too on um, one of the things that that i absolutely love and i would think that most of us here at bethel whether we're coaching or whatever we're doing is that we get to have a unique aspect on these students lives um from this age of 18 to 22, which is, I think is just awesome. I mean, they go from just down the hall from mom and dad. So when they're done here, they're getting married and mm. starting careers. And um, I think it, I just love watching them go through those, those, those four years or whatever it might be um, and, and guiding them, helping them in different ways um, with what, what that might be. Um, you know, we we help them from academics to, you know, figuring out, you know, what's this like living, living away from home, you know, and all those different things and navigating and, and they're just sponges in a lot of areas. And so, and then we get to combine that with sports, which is something that we're, we're all in this together and that, and that we love. So 
but yeah, these these crazy typical days, like what what it's like and stuff. And some days can just be all devoted to recruiting. Some days to um, okay, just this to do list of crazy you know schedule and and whatever it might be. Um, uh, and then along with that, then we haven't even talked about the whole sports side of things. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the actual preparation and scouting and getting ready for practice and helping them grow and our competition. And obviously we're here to, to be the best we can be and win and, um, and, and grow in our program, whether it's at the beginning of the season, how we're growing throughout the year and where we at in, in the spring or summer, whatever it might mm-hmm. be. So, so always evaluating and growing and strengthening our program in a variety of ways. Well, it kind of gets to the next thing I was curious about. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, how you measure success, effectiveness. What you, I mean, so you both have been part of teams that have achieved successes. I think most of us would define it in sports, you know, mm-hmm. conference championship, league mm-hmm. title, wins, losses. But um, I guess I've been around Bethel coaches enough to know that's not always how we define success. We have teams that don't have winning records and have never won a conference championship, and yet probably still see themselves they're very successful in many ways how how do you balance those two things because you have constituents who expect that kind of success i'm sure when you talk to your athletes and we talk to each other you have you have other ways of thinking about here's what we're here for here's what success looks like yeah we talk about um a lot in our program is um you know value like how good can i be today and so we don't really talk about necessarily like goals or exactly what we want to achieve because we know what we all want to achieve and we're here to win championships and things like that. But but we don't necessarily talk about that or win loss record or whatever it might be. But we're talking about how good how good can we be today and how much better can I get? And if you're always wanting that and and yearning for that and and working together with the person next to you in that sense, then then you're going to grow. And and if people. It was kind of interesting the number of comments like at the beginning of our year when you kind of looked at our record and I don't maybe it wasn't as great as some people might expect it like oh you've gone through some tough stuff or, or not or almost felt like a little bit of failure and when, when people mm-hmm. outside of our program would look in and and granted it would have been great to win all those games but but there are ways that we were growing every day and every week and whether it was a win or a loss and then you know, we look at the end of our season this year specifically, but we finished on 11 game win streak before losing the semifinals. But one of the most exciting things is we were, we had come together and we were doing things the way that we wanted to, to do it. And, um, and, and growing and coming together as a team and playing the way we knew we could. And then, and that happened to lead to a number of wins. So. Um, Gretchen, sorry, go ahead, Chris. I was going to ask a little bit about mindset. Mindset of, of the athletes that you're encountering here at the Division Three level. Um, we know Division Three sits a little bit apart from Division Two and Division One, and um, and obviously you've had some experience at, at coaching the professional level too. Does that Division Three mindset make its way onto into the student athletes that get, that come to a school like Bethel? Do they have a different kind of mental approach to who they see themselves as, as in terms of athletes and students and, and those sorts of things? Yeah, I think, um, so first of all, there's a lot of students um, competing at Bethel and in our league that were offered scholarships at other levels Mm -hmm. um, and either turned them down because it wasn't the right fit. They maybe wanted to be a two-sport athlete. They wanted to have a rigorous major that they weren't sure in talking to some of those levels that they could really do in Mm -hmm. a way they wanted to in play. 
so we have this, I mean, we have on our team that went to the Elite Eight, we had a Division One transfer, you know, from Drake. Um, men's basketball has a ton of transfers, I know, because I'm mm-hmm. the compliance person <laughs> and process them all. Um, and so we have <coughs> some really high, you know, achieving athletes. It seems to me the ones who are the best fit are the ones who are, who also are looking for something a little bit more um, mm. or a little bit, like the families you talk to that say like, um, say here, you know, for, you know, for a lot of different things, either like, like my faith is really critical to me and I want to be at a place that I get to help, I get to figure that out with other people while I'm, you know, while I'm growing up. Or um, I want to do, I want to be at Bethel's physician assistant program, you know, someday, and I want to be a biology major there and I want to work with those faculty. And I'm not sure I could do that at this other scholarship level place. Or um, I want to play volleyball and softball. Um, mm. Like Alec Valf, who was softball player, Mayak player of the week yesterday, and softball is starter for us. Mm. So if you so see, that's a really good CWC student, by the way. Yeah, she's a very good student. She's too busy She's a very good student. So when you see those people who are like, I know I'm a good athlete, and I've had a lot of people after me, but. I'm looking for something a little bit different. Those mm-hmm. are the ones that I don't know when mm-hmm. I feel like when I'm recruiting them, I'm like, yes, that is a hook. Like we're going to get them because mm-hmm. this is how we align. So I don't know if the mindset is different from a, like an in the gym competing standpoint. I feel like but you certainly have their motivations are different. right, but I would say that's a good way to put it. Maybe motivations are a little different. Okay. So Gretchen, you mentioned that as you were, I think you said you were talking about your college time, but um, you didn't have women coaches that you encountered, right? And, and when you came to Bethel, you were under a, a man who was coaching mm-hmm. women. Um, how much has this changed over time? I mean, just recently, I think it was, was it Notre Dame's women's mm-hmm. basketball coach, Muffin McCraw? Yep. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, lamented in the sense, mm-hmm. like, there's not been more progress here. There's still a lot of men coaching women. Uh, we'll get to women coaching men in a second, Alicia. But, uh, I mean, as you kind of step back at this point in your career, like, how satisfied are you with the progress women have made in having access to this profession? Or I don't know if you want to think about, you know, the AD's office or other kinds of jobs beyond just being an athlete yourself, being someone who coaches or trains or manages or oversees athletes? Well, first of all, um, part of what, like my opinion about women coaching women is definitely colored by the experience I had in college. I had some really great men who coached me growing up, people who were, you know, teachers in our school district who, you know, said final coach seventh grade girls volleyball, who were great people. but that was my first, and that experience was really powerful for me because she was, she was a young, newly married mom of kids, and that's what she wanted to do, and also was like the most competitive hmm. person I had ever met, and who required work from us in a way that nobody had ever required. And what I learned was that I loved like that work, and I mm-hmm. loved the expectation being so high. And I loved her saying, like, this is the behavior, like, this is what we expect. And I'm going to ask you to meet that. And I loved trying to meet it. Um, And so she, and then seeing her, I mean, she would be sometimes in a different car with the newborn baby on her way to the game. And we'd be meeting her there and just seeing her do it. Like, when I remember when I had my kids making me think, like, I can do it. Megan did it. You know, I know Mm. I can do it. And here's how she kind of did it. Um, and now I have young assistants coming behind me, and we have babies and kids in our gym and on our bus and constantly. And I don't think 
they would feel, at, I don't think I would be as good at doing that if I hadn't had that experience. So all, so my opinion is really colored by that. I do think women should be coaching women whenever possible. And I, w- I want to be like explicit about saying that. But, um, and we have, we made progress. So, you know, the A, back to the AIW days, it was 90% of women coaching women. Then as more money, as more, you know, opportunity, as more benefits got tied to it, you know, we've seen this plummet. And so when I was playing in college, even like 75% of D3 women's volleyball coaches were women. Mm -hmm. And now we're at 58%. Mm -hmm. So it's really plummeted. At the same time, I love hearing a variety of voices in my sport. So I love going to volleyball convention and Mm -hmm. having it be this mix of men and women. And you have these voices that have a great variety. And so I know you're going to talk about women coaching men with Alicia. I think that's actually a thing that's missing. On, I think at women, we have a little bit better deal right now in that we get this variety of voices. My boys growing up, I don't think are going to have that same variety of voices. Mm-hmm. Outside of the military, I don't think there's, which is even changing, I don't think there's any more segregated area in the world than men's athletics. Mm-hmm. And I don't think my boys, I don't think that's the best thing for them. Mm-hmm. Um, so I so I'm kind of talking out of both sides of my mouth in that I do love having a variety of voices on the women's side, but because the pendulum has swung so far back mm-hmm. into that we're now to the point of 50% of women are being coached by women, I think we have to be kind of pushing back on that pendulum and say, mm-hmm. yeah, I'm not for 100% of women coaching mm-hmm. women, mm-hmm. but I would like that pendulum to swing back a little. I mean, are there barriers to women coaching women, to having access to the profession? Is it that men are increasingly find this a desirable kind of job outcome? So there's a, yeah, there's coaching? a lot of complicated um, people who are, I mean, there's people doing research about it, trying to figure that out. Some of it is that there are way more men who now are interested in coaching women because it is just a more lucrative, Mm -hmm. you can, back with AIW days, you know, it was volunteer basically. Mm -hmm. So that's part of it. Um, Part of it is who's doing the hiring. So you alluded Mm -hmm. to athletic directors and and it's mostly not purposeful, but people hire people that look like them, sound like them, Mm -hmm. or similar to them. So that's a piece of it. Um, Some pieces of it are we aren't great. I, I've been on a lot of search committees, and men will put in an application for, and I don't know if this is true in all professions, but on the athletic side, I don't know if it's because they love games. They will put in applications for jobs they are not qualified for. Hmm. I mean, we have a lot of people who apply for jobs in athletics here who are not, it would be embarrassing, you know, to look at that resume. And women always, I feel like a lot of women think, oh, I'm not qualified for that job. And... And so I, I just think right. in my experience with working with young women, I, I feel like they need, you know, they're not always thinking like, I could do that. They, so that's a little bit of a generalization. There's a lot, but I think those are some of the reasons. Who's sure. doing the hiring, yeah. you know, and also who's applying. That is a broader phenomenon. That happens in politics as well. Does uh, it? <laughs> uh, female candidates running for the same <laughs> offices as male candidates usually have significantly higher qualifications. And um, part of the research is trying to figure out, is that because there were previous barriers to entry or they're just waiting longer because they perceive that there are barriers to entry. Right. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So this leads pretty naturally then, Alicia, into sure. a question. I've, I've certainly been wanting to ask, like, what, how did that door open for you? Was that, I mean, the chance of working with men basketball players after having been with the Lynx, having a lot of success, was that something you'd always look for? Was it an accident? How, how did that story unfold? Um, it was not something I was looking for. Um, I was... Super excited to be here at Bethel and be able to work in the um, 
in the athletic training department. And then uh, Coach Novak's first year here, after his first year here, he he's just saw some of the things that I was doing and helping with and contributing and maybe just jumping in. And he kind of talks about, like, every day is an interview. Hmm. And um, I think kind of that organization stuff, like Gretchen alluded to, oh, we went on one road trip and I brought – I. I paid for the pizza with a coupon, and they thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> so that's just me. I guess it's just what I, I So um, I don't think the other guys had thought to do that, but that's not why I got the job. But um, anyway, so I just kind of grew in that role and was able to help in some different things. And what we talk a lot about in our program is if, if this person can add value, why not have them around and have them do more things? And so um, I helped out a little bit more those next couple of years, and, and then our – full-time assistant coach left in the fall of 16. He um, was able to get a job in the NBA D-League at that time. And Coach Novak said, um, hey, I'd, I'd love for you to take that position. I think um, I think you're exactly what we need in our program. And, and our biggest thing wasn't like what people outside of the program, but within our program was um, if um, – if the guys in our program know that you can add value and you can help them in any way, and again, that big, like, um, getting better each day and, and how much better can I get today, if I can help with that, then, and and we didn't miss a beat, like, the guys in our program, it was it was great, it was normal, mm. so mm-hmm. that's probably mm. the best way to explain it, so. I mean, do you, do you see that becoming more normal, in a sense? Like, I mean, I think we've started to hear more of mm-hmm. these kinds of stories. Just yesterday, Chris and Sam and I were talking about Becky Hammond sure. and the chances sure. she'll be an NBA head coach seem you know, better than 50-50 right. at this yeah, point. Right, yeah, people speak so highly. Just, uh, I think it's even the last couple of days or week, the Tampa Bay Buccaneers hired a couple of women as assistant coaches coming out of the Alliance of American Football, Correct. Chris. Yes. Thank you. We've had a lot of talks <laughs> about <laughs> ongoing debate. Um, but on the other side, just That's yesterday, great. NPR had a story about how baseball really lags behind in this. You know, no women working at the level of manager assistant but also even at like three assistant general managers uh very little in analytics or scouting like Mm -hmm. there's a door closed there still um i mean as you look forward to the rest of your career like will this become a more and more common story is this still an exception rather than the rule How, how do you expect this to develop yeah i think um ironic that we met today following the final four being here in minneapolis mm-hmm. which was just which just a great opportunity it was just a blast these last five days getting to connect with coaches and being in, at our coaches convention and just around the game and and the number of conversations and things and and job opportunities things like that <laughs> like wow that's kind of blew me away but um the biggest thing to take away from um and answer that question is take away is is the the male coaches that I've been around that in the in the men's basketball community they want whoever can whoever's the best at their craft and whoever can help their program and improve in that area and I don't hear many specific words of like oh like we need to hire we need to get more like a female just like just like a person but I love what you can do whether you're male or female and so mm-hmm. which I liked hearing those type of things better but um, just like like I'm gonna I'm gonna hire her if I get a high major job because they've seen what I've been able to do mm-hmm. not because it would look good to have a female on their staff right. so and um, then that's positive for me to hear things like that that people are open to whoever is the best at the at whatever the job is so that's what I've heard in you know in my world that I've been around Okay. Well, even in the off-season, I know you both are very busy with your job, so I appreciate you giving us some time to help us understand a little bit more about what it's like to be a coach, generally what it's like to be a woman coaching, too. Mm-hmm. Best wishes you. is your off-season. Thanks for having us. Thanks so much. Appreciate it. We'll be right back. 
Basketball is my favorite sport. I like the way they dribble up and down the court. Just like out the canal, the microphone. So it's Dr. J and Moses Malone. I like slam dunks and taking it to the hoop. My favorite play is the alley oop. I like the pick and roll. I like the give and go. Cause it's basketball. Uh, Mr. Curtis Get in touch with the 252 by emailing us at livefromac2nd at gmail.com. As always, we're running short of time. Segment three has got to be a quick one. Uh, Chris, kick us off with three to see for the coming weekend. Well, speaking of the Masters, which you mentioned earlier, a tradition unlike any other kicks off the major season in professional golf this weekend. The Masters will be held in Augusta, Georgia, as per usual, and it features a competitive field, including Tiger Woods, who is 14 to 1 odds, despite withdrawing from his last tournament with a neck strain. Incidentally, Rory McIlroy is the favorite at 8 to 1. Incidentally. Uh, I'm going to go with the Women's Hockey World Championship. They conclude this week in Finland. So the first round is still in process as we record, but to this point, Team USA is undefeated. They even beat arch rival Canada. 3-2, to two, thanks to a second-period goal by Annie Pankowski of the University of Wisconsin. She also scored a shorthanded goal against the Minnesota Golden Gophers to help the Badgers win the NCAA championship last month. Quarterfinals are this Thursday, semi-Saturday, and the championship on Sunday. Sam? Uh, April 15th is not just Tax Day, it's also Patriots Day in Boston, Massachusetts, which features an early day game between the Orioles and the Red Sox, but more importantly, it's the day of the world's oldest annual marathon, the Boston Marathon. Do you want to break down the field for us, Sam? What should we expect this year? The Boston <laughs> Go to my marathon. blog for that, Chris. <laughs> okay. All right. Any <laughs> last thoughts, gents, or are we done with this episode? It's done with us, I think. Okay, yeah, Chris, take us out. Well, keep those batteries fresh in your controller so you can play some esports. On behalf of my friends here at Bethel University, go Royals. Go Royals.